Morrison fails allies in Kabul, COVID explosion in New South Wales, wages go backwards, and the good news is electric highways in WA. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from locked down Sydney, two months in with 600 plus new cases, is the always radiant Van Batam. How are you, Van? He's saying that I'm radiant because he knows I've been having a frustration cry, everybody. So he really is just deceptively charming, this man. <laughs> Hopefully not deceptively charming. Oh, um, you are. You, you, I have uh, a talent for making me feel better, my darling. You know that? Oh, that's good. I know lots of people who've been listening to the show now into our second year uh, have been sending lovely messages of support to both myself and Van, and we want to thank everybody for their support. And what is a tough time? It is a tough time to be separated from the person that you love, and we are separated by a hard border and by an invisible killer virus. And frankly, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. No, and certainly not in New South Wales. You know, I read a prediction the other day that they don't think we're going to be out of lockdown for five months. Five wow. months. Wow. And it's just, it's, it's just deplorable. It's getting harder and harder to watch the news here because, you know, they throw their hands up in the air, they blame individuals. It's that liberal mindset. Like if things are going wrong, well, it must be an individual's fault. And everywhere in this state there is just constant systemic failure. And you can see that by the fact that cases are out of control. Well, we're going to talk about COVID shortly because uh, it has been a very big news week. Uh, we, we chose to do this show on a Wednesday because Wednesday was normally a day where there was a few things to talk about, but obviously there's a lot going on at the moment. One of the things that is obviously happening for a lot of people all around Australia is that there are all sorts of uncertainties in the workplace. And I want to give here a bit of a plug to the Australian Union's podcast on the job. Many of our listeners I know will already be listening to it. Um, We love the show. It's a fantastic, fantastic podcast. You know, we're all about making the world a fairer place and on the job is all about making working life better and going through the ways in which being in union actually improves people's lives. It's hosted by Francis Leach, very good friend of ours, and Sally Rugg, who many people know as well. Oh, Um, we love Francis and Sally. They're really good friends to us and they're really good comrades and people. Yeah. So, look, we're giving their show a plug. Obviously, it's it's made by Australian unions. It's made for workers. It's available wherever you get um, your favourite podcasts. They have their own website on the job, podcast.com.au. Really worth listening to. Uh, and obviously, if you're a union member, fantastic, fantastic uh, resource there about what unions are up to, what unions are doing, and how they're making the the workplace a fairer and better place to be. Talking about places to be, at the moment, of course, Van Kabul in Afghanistan is not a place you want to be. Not the easiest segue I've ever done. (laughs) No, it's not a place uh, rather a lot of people want to be, hence the horrible scenes at the airport this week with people desperately trying to flee the Taliban. It's just, it's terrifying. Um, People would have seen the footage of the people who were so desperate to leave that they physically clung to an American jet and literally fell out of the sky from the wings of a jet rather than stay and face death by the Taliban. It's just awful. We are living through a tragic time. And there are reports uh, now that uh, some of the US planes that have arrived uh, at their base of operations have found um, the bodies of individuals in the in the landing gear, uh, people who had jammed themselves into the landing gear to try and escape from Kabul. Let, let's just take a moment to very quickly recap um, the situation because obviously there's a lot of news about this. It all moves very, very quickly. Uh, I think it's important we, we get some understanding before we get into a discussion of of where things are up to now and, and what might happen next. Essentially, the Taliban have taken over 
over uh, around 90% of Afghanistan. They took Kabul, with, which is the capital of Afghanistan, without a fight. Um, the president fled, uh, fled the country uh, with his family and some members of his government. Um, the new Taliban leader was originally captured in 2010 and was released uh, from prison in Pakistan as part of a peace deal with tr- the Trump administration that saw 5,000 uh, fighters released in 2020. We'll get into some more detail on that shortly. Um, there is uh, there is some concern uh, that Morrison is only promising 3,000 visas for people who are trapped. Um there have been three flights now sent uh, from Australia. The first has already returned to its base of operation and it was only carrying 26 Australians. These are C-130 aircraft. They're very large aircraft. Uh, the Taliban is claiming to have pardoned all who've helped the US and Australia. They're claiming they will respect the rights of women and girls within Sharia law. Uh, they are claiming to be allowing people to make their way to the airport uh, the U.S. has established uh, a, a zone of control uh, with 4,000 troops around the airport. Uh, they've so far evacuated 3,200 people on 13 flights. They're anticipating being able to airlift 9,000 people a day shortly and to do that for some time. There are reports that there are about 73,000-plus people who have helped the United States, Australia, and our allies who would be desperate to leave. Uh, and as I say, and now the Morrison government is expecting to only only take out 600 people uh, from Afghanistan directly. That's the situation as it stands. Uh, there have been various rumours and various reports of things. All I've read out to you is the things that I've been able to verify from multiple sources. It's it's an incredibly challenging um, time for hundreds of thousands of people, not least of which our veterans as well, Van. Yeah, and not least of which are the community of um, Afghanistan Afghan asylum seekers and refugees who are already in Australia Absolutely. who are waiting for their refugee claims to be processed um, and they face the threat of deportation at any time. Like it, it's just terrible. Like just to give people some background, Afghanistan is is not like a Western country. It has a different culture and many different cultures within it. There are 14 different ethnic communities who live in Afghanistan. Relationships between some of them are incredibly fractious. The Taliban, the word Taliban means students, which is a terrifying concept. They're from the Pashtun um Mm -hmm. Uh, ethnicity within the population. They speak Pashto. They're from the south and the east. Um, They are Sunni Muslim and they practice a a very hardline conservative form of Sunni Islam. Uh, They traditionally have problems with the third largest uh, community in Afghanistan who are the Hazara people. The Hazara people are the descendants of Genghis Khan. They've been there since the 13th century. They have been subject to systemic discrimination for hundreds of years. Uh, A couple of hundred years ago, uh, the the, uh, I think it was a a Shah Emir of Afghanistan. I can't remember the title. I am I am sorry. Um, Mm. He sold them all into slavery. (laughs) So that's kind of a a bit of a systemic problem that it takes generations to overcome. They speak Hazaragi and they speak Dari, which are of course dialects of Persian. They're Shiite Muslim. They come from a very different uh, cultural practice because they prioritise education. They're a culture that's really obsessed with educational achievement. They are just routinely uh, persecuted by the Taliban as an ethnic minority, even though there some approximations are there as many as 25% of the population. The bulk of Afghan refugees in Australia are Hazara. You know, you have entire families trying to get their children who tried to get their children out. Um, you know, young people have been targeted by the Taliban because young people who represent, you know, liberal thinking and it's a culture the Hazara support gender equality and you know, reaching out to other countries and 
all of the things the Taliban hate. So they occasionally the Taliban raid and shoot up a school and kill heaps of children to keep these people, you know, terrified and um, under control. And so you have like literally 25% of the population of Afghanistan who think they're going to be subject to a genocide. There's been heaps of writing about this. Like the, the tensions are complex and they are terrible. The, the project of the United States setting up a Western-style government was always going to be really fraught. It's a complex situation because the government in Afghanistan weren't uh, effective or cohesive. But as mm-hmm. I like to rem- and Van, yeah. just on that, I mean, t- today the US is is laying the 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 blame very squarely at the feet of the Afghan political leadership for the situation. That they they're, they're very much saying that the Afghan political leadership has failed to bring the country together. That America and, and American allies from the EU and Australia included spent trillions of dollars and two decades. Um, trying to build a, a viable democratic um, series of institutions and, and fundamentally, you know, the, the Afghan political leadership fell over in a matter of weeks um, in the face of, uh, of the Taliban. Well, this is the thing. You had, um, oh, what's his name, the, the guy who's been the president, he left the country. He yeah. skipped out. He's gone. Yeah. Ashraf Ghani. He just yeah. took off. And it's like, what on earth is this? Hamid Karzai, who was the first uh, sort of, you know, Western-installed leader, he's helping the Taliban with the transition into government. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable how quickly they folded. You know, there were reports of the um, Afghan army just handing their guns to the Taliban. Like all of these weapons, these American weapons, have just been handed over to these people. And I just want people to get an understanding. So the population of Afghanistan is about 38 million people. There are only approximately 60,000 Taliban. But the reason why they've been able to continue is they've had a lot of support from a lot of different uh, state-based actors, shall we say, that it's very convenient for some people to support the Taliban because obviously the Taliban are a massive irritation to the United States. They were supporting terrorist activity, like we know that. Yeah. Um, and the Taliban, of course, make a lot of money from supplying world markets with heroin. Um, and they, I mean, they've been, there was, there was an article that I read where I talked about how they had cash reserves of about $1.6 billion dollars. And that's what they've been. So this idea that the Taliban are just these goat herders who sit in the mountains is, you know, racist and also very naive, dangerously naive. Mm. This is an extremely well-resourced movement. Already today, Russia and China, no friends of Western democracy, have talked about how they're probably likely to recognise the Taliban regime because they can. I was surprised. Surprised it took a whole day. No, well, I was surprised Canada today has recognised uh, the Taliban. And, and as you say, um, Karzai, the, the first democratic um, uh, president of Afghanistan, is helping with the transition. And one of the uh, elected vice presidents or, or former um, government's vice presidents has been installed as acting president uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on here that, you know, I think most of us would not have been aware of and, frankly, you know, the shock uh, because of how rapidly this has occurred and because for the last 20 years, you know, we, we have recognised the Taliban as an enemy of the West, as, as a sponsor of terrorism, as an oppressor of women and girls and and minority groups and... and like the Hazara, who they, can we yeah. just underline this, routinely mass murder? They routinely mass murdered these people. Well, this is, this is the thing. So now suddenly, you know, I was quite shocked um, that Canada has recognised them. You know, the EU has said that they haven't recognised them yet, but they have opened um, a dialogue with them. Morrison was asked today whether Australia would recognise them or not and didn't really give an answer. Um, there, there's there's a lot going on in this. Um, you know, the, the, the Taliban are saying... And it's very, it's very, very hard to kind of conceptualise this because they're saying that everybody's been pardoned, right, and that they'll respect people within Sharia law. Um, they're saying that things are different to what they were 20 years ago. No one, there will be no revenge, um, and the laws of man can change. 
but no no Muslim can change the rules of Islam, which seems to me to to be a bit of bet hedging here. You know, some of the experts have said that yeah, it's not the same Taliban as twenty years ago, um, but they're not. You know, they're not cave dwelling savages. That the sort of racist um, rhetoric of a, of two decades of kind of war and conflict would have us believe. Um, the the leadership is quite intelligent. Um, there are still in that kind of group of seventy thousand people very extreme elements, um, but the, the leadership you know doesn't want to be bombed back into the caves essentially, and and understands. That things can't be like they were in 2000, when they were blowing up World Heritage sites and and murdering women in the street and you know claiming there was no crime, but in effect committing all of the crime. Um, but it's it's a terrifying prospect. I mean, how do you put your trust if you're a Hazara in in Afghanistan? You know, or, or any kind of minority, or um, you know, have a, have a different gender identity. Or if you're gay, God help you. Or if you're yeah. trans, God help you. You know, how do you, how do you put your sort of trust in in that circumstance? Like it, it's got to be a terrifying time for people. Well, this is the thing. I mean, the world has changed in the past twenty years, and one of the interesting articles that I read the other day was about how Afghans are wiping their social media history. But the fact no. is that there are Afghans who have a social media history. Like we're talking about, I think we forget how how quickly technology has changed the way that we communicate and communities organise, and that's as true for Afghanistan as it is everywhere else. I mean, people have mobile internet and mobile phones in Afghanistan as they do anywhere. Yeah. And it just I, means I, I, that I there are... One. I saw one Taliban commander in the middle of a street in Kabul on what looked like a brand new iPhone on the news. You know, like yeah. So it it's it'll be interesting to see how much they can culturally coerce. Like there was a protest of women outside the presidential palace today, like a, a group of women um, with placards. Wow. I mean, this was unthinkable. Uh, 20 years ago before the US occupation, there is literally all those women would already be dead. There would never yeah. be photographs of them. I mean, you the old Taliban women couldn't leave the house without a chaperone. Women weren't allowed to read. And if I'm sounding particularly emotional, like I worked with um, refugees from Afghanistan uh, in the year 2000 with teenagers who had seen things that no human being should have to see. Um, the particular kids I worked with, their father had been a communist and had been associated with the Soviet occupation and they had been forced to watch the Taliban execute him and there were more details than that and it was the worst thing I've ever heard and they were like these small children. And I remember the little girl telling me that she was just so excited to be at school because she was going to be allowed to read. Like that was the most magical and incredible thing she could possibly imagine that she would be on this sort of reading adventure and I've been thinking about those kids a lot I mean they I mean they're Australian now they've been here for Mm. 20 years and I haven't had contact with them since and just you know there has been that cultural change it's very difficult to put the genie back in the box when it comes to um once somebody's educated, you can't uneducate them. You can lock them up, you can oppress them, you can shoot them, you can kill them, rape them, abduct them, whatever. But it is interesting that the Taliban have said, you know, there are there are women who have jobs and we're going to let them keep them. Because, I mean, the other thing is that it's the kind of jobs that people have gotten in Afghanistan. Like are they, if they're serious about running a country, they actually need the skill set that that has been shared um, equally yeah. in the population or, yeah. you know, relatively clearly in the population of they need doctors and there are women doctors and they need scientists and there are women scientists and they need researchers and bureaucrats and administrators and these skills have been given to women. So, look, whether it's going to go full handmaid's tale or not, who knows, but it is really it is really complex. It's moving very quickly. Um, the Taliban are putting out propaganda videos that are basically saying everything's fine. You yeah. know, we're just going to make sure that this is all governed by Islamic law. But let's remember as well, like you know, the crazy far right have made such a demon of um, 
Sharia law in, in in Western discourses, as if we think, as if a lot of Westerners, I think, think it's just one homogenous mass that affects, you know, all people equally. And of course, like any system of laws derived from holy writ, it's infinitely reinterpretable. Like yeah, I think totally. Bosnia is also full of Muslims. Yeah, that's right. As is Indonesia. As is Indonesia, as is Malaysia, like these are Muslim countries and their interpretation of, and you know, it is, vast, is vastly, massively different to what the, the Taliban students um, believe that it is. Well, but I want to talk, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, Van, because, because it, it kind of comes back to that, the, the leader who, who was released as part of that post deal, because, you know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, the young people that you worked with um, 20 years ago uh, and that their father had been, you know, involved in the, in the eighties and the seventies, the, the new leader of the Taliban, um, is an is apparently an academic from that time who fought against the Soviets, um, which is slightly different to the religious leaders who led in t- 2000, 2001 when when the um, when the war happened. Uh, but you know, do, do you think that's going to make any kind of difference? I mean, you know, he he seems to have taken over the country in less than a year. Um, with this army of five thousand that Trump essentially gave him, right? Like, oh this, yeah, this is Trump, the most Trump crazy gave part of the story, him. in my view, right? That you know, that the part of the peace deal that Trump struck in twenty twenty was that this guy would be released from a Pakistani prison and 5,000 Taliban fighters would be released as well over the objections of now former president of Afghanistan. Of, of, of yeah. Uh, oh, well, I mean, this is the thing. Like the, the whole, they call, everybody knows this, they call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. You know, it's the British got absolutely mushed in Afghanistan. You know, the um, Russians, it just, like we talk a lot about, you know, the, the fall of um, Soviet communism, it had rather a lot to do with the fact that the Soviets were pouring blood and treasure into Afghanistan and just getting yeah. absolutely mashed there. I mean, one of the reasons why it's so complex is the actual geography of Afghanistan, you know, like impassable mountains, you, you know, really tricky terrain. The reason why there are these significant ethnic minorities is because cultures there traditionally have been sealed off by geography. Yeah. So there's like a, a lack of national cohesion and tribal relationships are more important. And oh, it's and this is the thing, you know, the United States went in there just like Britain did, just like the Russians did, and had the same problems. So Bill Shorten has been talking about his trip to Afghanistan in 2018 and when he was there, he's been doing media about this. Bill's been really, really good on this this week. Um, he talked about how... Well, well I, saw, I saw just very quickly, I saw that he uh, has called for 20,000 visas to be issued and and the whole Labor Party has, has picked up on that demand as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. So Albo came out yesterday afternoon and said Labor's position is that any Afghan in Australia should just be offered permanent residency. Like, come here, on, here, here, you know, what are we doing? Um, and But Bill was saying that in 2018 when he was there, they were going, I think, between like Kabul and Kandahar and he had to go in an armoured helicopter mm-hmm. and he was like, we've been here for 17 years and we still can't travel on the roads. Like well, the only way of ensuring safety is to go. And he and he, he said that moment when people explained, no, 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 we're travelling like this, he just went, yeah, we're in massive trouble. And this is the thing, like the, the Americans... Look, it's it's complicated. So I, I had an argument with somebody on social media yesterday and it was sort of a bit, it was a bit old school because they were like, oh, American imperialism, American imperialism is terrible. And I'm like, yes, like I, I agree with you, but it's no longer the 1970s or 1980s. Like, you know, yeah. did I support the military intervention in Afghanistan? No, I absolutely didn't. Do I think it's been better or worse for the people of Afghanistan? Well, given the fact that my experience of um, Afghanistan has been 
traumatised children who came here as refugees because they'd seen their father be murdered and the community of Zara in Melbourne, who I'm very close to, who literally fled for their lives, some of them like crossing borders on foot and spending years in um, detention centres in Australia because that was preferable to what faced them as Hazara under the Taliban. So, like, do I, what is, what is my position? Like, it's a ludicrously complex situation as it has been for everybody. Do I think the US occupation was good for women? Well, yeah, it was absolutely good for women. And if we're talking about women as 51% of a population as they are anywhere, like if the US occupation and the allied intervention created opportunities and equality and education and, you know, like lifted some of the burden of oppression from women, well, that's a good thing. Should it had should it have been a military occupation? Well, no. Nobody should have to live under military occupation. But it's really, really complex. Well, it is, isn't it? And 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 you know, it's a natural human response to try and simplify these things. And and I think we'd all all like it to be much more simple than it was. You know, for their, you know, there are there are clearly bad people doing bad things and good people who've done bad things and you know good people try and doing good things um, and everything kind of in between and and the thing that I I try and focus on in this is that there are you know 73,000 people in Afghanistan who helped us who helped us who helped America who helped the Western allies uh, when we, we you know the original reason we went there was to get rid of Al Qaeda and to stop the, the the export of terrorism from Afghanistan and to find Bin Laden, who of course was hiding in Pakistan. Brilliant, awesome, but, well done, everyone. But, you know, like that was the original reason. And there's seventy three thousand people who today their lives are at risk, and we know hundreds of them over the last ten years have been murdered um, by the Taliban, uh, and and. You know, I'm sure they take very little comfort in public proclamations of a pardon, and you know that doesn't that doesn't mention them by name. At the same time, as you know, there are rumours, and I don't want to, I don't want to report too many of the rumours because these are the sorts of circumstances where there are lots of rumours. Um, but you know, from from reputable news sources, there are rumours that despite the Taliban saying anyone who wants to go to the airport will be allowed to go, that there are individual units of the Taliban or individuals within the Taliban, however you want to say it, um, that are, you know, attacking people, spitting on them, beating them, you know, um, uh, roughing them up um, as they try and make their way to the airport. So, you know, it is, in my view... Like, we've known this was going to happen, right? Like, you can talk about failures of intelligence as much as you like. We, we Six months ago, we withdrew the last of our soldiers. And, and in 2018, Bill Shorten stood up in Parliament and said that there were Australian veterans trying to get their interpreters and their families to Australia who were being denied the safety and safe harbour of Australia. We knew that in 2018. We knew six months ago our soldiers would be gone. We closed our embassy five months ago. You know, people were speculating three, four weeks ago that that it wouldn't take long for Kabul to fall. You know, there's all sorts of debate about whether it could have fought on. You know, the, the Taliban... And one wonders about that, right? Like people are saying, oh, well, if they had fought harder, they might have been able to hold them off. Well, the, the Taliban didn't go away in 20 years of, of the largest, most powerful military superpower in history being in their country. You know, I can, I can see the temptation to say, well, they should have tried to fight them off and keep them out of Kabul. I can also see the logic that says, you know, if we don't, turn our capital city into a war zone, hundreds of thousands of people will not be killed and perhaps what we can do is moderate um, the carnage uh, because we've seen, we've seen what happens. Even, you know, even the, the Soviet, you know, uh, takeover of Berlin, cities that resist armies 
tend to come off quite poorly, and it's usually the civilian population that comes off the most poorly. And and this is why I just think this this window of time where we could have been getting people out, we weren't. Morrison wasn't doing anything. America wasn't doing enough, in my view. Uh, and now we've really got to step it up, you know. It, oh, Ben, you didn't see the Morrison presser today, did you? No, I have, I've been doing oh, a lot. Oh, let me tell you, because the ADF are going absolutely mental, as they should, because you had Australians who depended for their lives on their Afghan colleagues when they were there, when they were deployed there, and all of these stories about people's lives who were saved, you know, these powerful interventions by these people, you know, like, and, and let's remember they wore the Australian uniform. Yeah, Afghans wore the uniform of the Australian uh, the Australian Defence Force in Afghanistan. Like they are, they they were fighting with us, you know, Boys. dying with us, risking their lives with us. And absolutely, the the contract is. I mean, you know, this was the argument that Fraser made in the seventies about refugees from Vietnam. He was like, we fought alongside these people. And we ha- we have to create sanctuary for them. And we took two hundred thousand um, migrants from Vietnam based on that basic principle of loyalty, which I think was the best thing Fraser ever did, frankly. And yeah. you know, enriched the life of the nation no end. And clearly, I don't think the moral argument has changed. No. What has changed is the moral caliber of the prime minister. So <laughs> Morrison got up at his presser today and was bragging about how Australia always saw this coming. We saw this coming. We knew what the Taliban were up to, so we cleared out the last of our um, embassy staff in May. We knew in May. So we got our people out in May. And it's like, well, what about the thousands of other people who were helping us? So you've known since May that this situation was going to happen and it was intractable and you did nothing. You're bragging that you knew about it, but you didn't actually do anything about it. And it's and, it, and as you know, Van, my, my friend uh, who worked for the US State Department and, and served in Afghanistan, um, you know, 10 plus years ago now, um, he tells the story of how Afghanis saved his life, um, quite literally saved his life uh, from a mortar attack, you know, and and the idea that um, those people who put themselves at risk, who, as as he said, you know, were absolutely known by the Taliban to be helping them, that knew who their families were and that had to walk a fine line about how they helped and when and where so that they weren't murdered to leave them behind um, on on what is a fairly flimsy set of promises um, made, you know, by a group of people who now have total control. Anyway, we, we oh, have to and move I, on. I do. I just. I do want to just acknowledge a couple of things because we didn't really explain the Trump thing. So when Trump was campaigning in 2016, he campaigned on a promise of bringing troops home from Afghanistan and ending the forever wars. And the Republicans and the the Western right have been totally invested in this whole idea of the forever wars and the forever wars have got to stop. And that was a populist position. And the the guy who's now in charge. Um, who whose name is Barakas? Barakas. What is his name? Um, who? Well, there's a very famous photo of him standing standing next to Mike Pompeo, who's apparently also considering a presidential run in the US because the problems never go away. Um, Barada, Barada. So Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada was one of the founders of the Taliban. The CIA found him in 2010 and put him in prison, and the the Trump administration released him in 2018 and negotiated with him about releasing 5,000 Taliban soldiers from, from custody against the wishes of Ashraf Khani and the Afghan government and also 400 murderous militants. The Trump administration let them all go. There is a photo on my Facebook, you can look at it, of Pompeo 
with Baradar and it's just everything. It's so, and now, of course, Trump is saying, oh, this is all Biden's disaster and this is all terrible and it's all Biden's fault and whatever. Of course, Biden inherited um, the phased out withdrawal. And, yes, I absolutely think that it's a mess. I think people were vastly unprepared for how quickly it was all going to crumble and go to pieces. I think the Americans probably expected there'd be more resistance. I think the Taliban have been very shrewd. I do not think that they've been acting in isolation. One presumes that they've been speaking to the Russian and the Chinese and maybe the Canadians are nefarious, who knows. Like it's a very fast-moving situation. But what we absolutely must do is we must provide sanctuary to every single Afghan citizen who is in Australia or currently trapped in Indonesia in limbo. Like it should just go without saying, just like Bob Hawke said, any Chinese national who is in Australia at the time of Tiananmen Square, you have a home here, you are welcome here, that's it. Like uh, absolutely that's the position that we have to adopt. I just think doing anything else is disgustingly immoral. And for the gov- for the Morrison government to say at this stage we're not going to deport anybody is sickening and adding to the terror of the people who are here who are terrified of going home and as Australians, as good people, as citizens of the world and as a democracy, we absolutely need to back in these people. 100%. 100% agree. Um, you know, who, who better to have as a neighbour than someone who was prepared to wear the Australian uniform and risk their lives to help save Australians? Who doesn't want a neighbour like that? You know, I, I, we absolutely should, you know, 73,000 people, they're not all going to want to come here, folks. But those who do, they, they should absolutely be welcomed uh, with open arms. Now, Van, we have to move on. Um, that is a big story that's going to continue to unfold. And talking of unfolding stories, of course, the situation with COVID in Australia uh is getting worse, frankly, uh, is getting worse. Some quick numbers, then we'll get into the discussion. There are now 8,000 active cases of COVID in New South Wales alone, 633 cases today, up to 500 of which were active in the community during their infectious period. There are currently 462 people in New South Wales hospitals with COVID-19. 77 of those are in ICU, 25 are on ventilators, and sadly, three Australians died in the last reporting period. Um, There have been 22 new cases in the ACT. That's 3% of the ACT population are now in quarantine, including Senator Katie Gallagher, former First Minister of the ACT, and because her 14-year-old daughter, now has COVID, uh, and we'll get into some more discussion about that shortly. There are 24 new cases in Victoria. That brings our total cases active at the moment to 246. There are 55 people between the ages of 10 and 19 uh, with COVID currently in Victoria. 12 people are in hospital. One is in ICU. The lockdown in Melbourne has been extended to September 2. There is a curfew in place. Uh, Check your local health advice. There are no new cases in Queensland, which is great news. Check local health advice for what protections have been put in place there. And there are now seven cases in New Zealand, Um, not formally part of the Commonwealth, but in my heart and in yours, always uh, part of our... Well, they're part of the Commonwealth, just not the Commonwealth of Australia. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Seven cases linked to the New South Wales outbreak. Yes, well done. Seriously, well done, Gladys. Well done. Spreading coronavirus. Well, let's talk about... Spreading it from New South Wales to Victoria, to Queensland, to New Zealand. (laughs) To the ACT. Well, let's talk about Gladys because she's now saying we, we haven't seen the worst of it. She's still saying that. And yet there's no announcement on extension of, um, I'm not going to call it a lockdown because it's restrictions really. There's pockets that seem to be locked down, but mostly sort of a confusing array of restrictions in New South Wales. They're due to end on August 29. Now at the moment, you know, I realised this today, we, we have this bizarre situation now where despite the fact we haven't seen the worst of it in New South Wales, according to the Premier, there are 8,000 active cases, a massive record-breaking day today in terms of new cases. Their lockdown in New South Wales the rest is due to end before the one in Melbourne because Melbourne is saying, no, no, we're going to 
do the right thing here. I mean, how can Gladys continue on like this, Van? Like, what what is happening in New South Wales? Oh, it is it, what is happening in New South Wales. I'm going to tell you an anecdote that for me just sums up everything. My mother has a very, very beloved friend who is an immunocompromised person who lives alone. And this person called us the other day saying to my mother, going absolutely bonkers, I need a bubble buddy. Yeah. And my mother, yeah. my mother is going through cancer treatment at the moment. My mother is also compromised. There was a COVID outbreak in the cancer ward where my mother has been getting treatment. By a miracle, my mother got a telehealth appointment so she didn't have to go in on the day that, um, on one of the days where the, the virus days, would have been yeah. circulating. So, I mean, that for a start, like what on earth is going on? Um Anyway, so my mother was, you know, loves her friend and was like, I just don't know what to do. And I'm like, I'll have a look at the website. So I look up the website. Is there any comprehensive information about this? Well, there are four different versions of it and it's all completely incomprehensible. And I'm like, right, I'm a fairly sophisticated reader and communicator in the English language and if I don't understand this website, I just who who will be able to understand this? I'll call them. I spent half an hour um, going through the phone tree to find out what the bubble buddy thing was and got it reached the end of the phone tree after half an hour and got a message that went, if you're calling about bubble buddies, we have no information on that at this time. Click, beep, beep, beep. And I was just beside myself because it was just like, what are the, how are these people supposed to function? What on earth is going on? Where is the reliable information? If you watch one of the New South Wales press conferences, they are all over the shop. Oh. Everything is all over the shop. It is very difficult to work out what the rules are, you know, and, of course, the blame is all on the citizens. Oh, well, you know, people aren't doing this and people aren't doing that. And it's like, but you're not modelling what the what the rules are. Like when no. I got here, I was very cross with other New South Wales people going, why are you not masking? Why are you not doing these things? Poor little Soviet Victorian going, you know, why is, why is Hollywood so decadent basically? And it's because the government are not actually communicating clearly or modelling what the rules are and what they should be. It is absolutely enraging. I had to find a friend of mine who is a New South Wales um, political operative, I think is the polite term, the, you know, the word hack also comes to mind. And I was like, look, I'm totally desperate. You're the most well-connected person I know. What's the deal with my mother and her bubble buddy? Like how do we work this out? And it turned out that if my mother's friend had have come here, we would have been breaking the law. So, of course, we had to say, no, look, you know, and we put another um, arrangement in place with another friend and everybody's okay. By the way, the punchline of, of this is everybody's okay because I phoned a hack and said what are the rules. Now, this if you're not the- if you're this not connected the, the way I am, how on earth are you getting the information? And this is the problem, right? So, you know, you've got a government that doesn't really know what it's doing and and, and most most people aren't going to have um, your political connections and it should be stressed that, you know, you knew somebody, there was no um, exchange of favours. This wasn't a, in any way a shady dealing. This was just... No, no, this hey, is literally you know me phoning someone. Me? Yeah, yeah, this is me phoning someone going, I, I bet this person knows what's going on. I also want to point out that that point you made about how people getting the support they need, you know, New South Wales, and this has done my head in for a long time. This isn't, this isn't new information um, from, from my perspective, but they have a minister for customer service. Right, a minister for customer service, as though being a citizen of New South Wales is some kind of purchasing decision that people make, rather than something that happens because they're born within a certain series of arbitrary territorial borders. And the minister for customer service is coming under pressure, partly because it's unintelligible what's on their website, and partly because it's now taking seven and a half days, working days, to process financial payments, these sort of emergency support payments. Now, if you can't figure out whether or not you're allowed to have somebody over to be in a bubble, if you don't have money coming through the door, if you if it's not clear whether or not you're allowed to go to work and you don't have any paid leave available, people are going to go to work, they're going to go and ask their neighbours and friends what they can and can't do and they're going to spread COVID. And that's what's been happening for two months in New South Wales. It took them until last Friday to implement a payment 
for people who got tested and needed to isolate as a result of being tested so they didn't go to work and spread COVID. Oh, you- it is a nightmare. And, and I tell you what annoys me, people want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. Like my mother's friend phoning and needing a bubble buddy and the rest of it. Everybody wants to know what the rules are and the New South Wales government is absolutely incapable of communicating well, them. It's part, it of is- the reason, it's part of the reason why, you know, the Australian Union movement and New South Wales, unions New South Wales in particular, have been pushing for paid vaccination leave. So they've won it for 1.6 million workers through representation in the workplace. But, of course, there are, you know, what are there, 8 million people living in New South Wales. You know, you can't, if the rules aren't clear, people don't have access to paid leave, workplaces are going to require people to come into work. We know that Australia has one of the highest rates of insecure work. People, of course, people are spreading it in workplaces. Of course, they're picking it up at work and bringing it home and then spreading it to their neighbours. Like, this is, we know all of this. This is what blows my mind. We know how this works. We've lived through it. We've observed it in other places. How is it that Gladys and Brad Hazard have not resigned? <laughs> Just- oh, because they're the victims here, Ben. Like seriously, the the shirtiness when journalists get on their backs because everybody here is frustrated and are usually, you know, are usually fairly past state politics is usually the opportunities to it's form relationships. Chummy. It's pretty chummy. It's pretty chummy. chummy. And, that's, and look, okay, Everybody does their job in their own way. State politics is not the most interesting life or death beat usually. Um, I'm sure there are people who will argue with me and say that I'm wrong, but it can be very chummy. They're small circles that people walk walk in and generally press conferences are not particularly charged on any side of politics, frankly. But people in New South Wales are losing it and that tone is coming through in the press conferences and the behaviour of the um of Berger-Clean and Hazard, which is snippy and defensive and how dare you ask me a question. And some of my other favourite things is when when the question is actually political, they push a public servant in front of the camera and get them to answer the question. You know, yeah, like dodging, no whinging, oh, everybody's, you know, everybody's being mean to us and kind of thing. And it's like it's because you're the government. You're actually employed by the people to to manage these situations. You know, you are not hereditary princes with the burden of the crown. You put yourself up for election. Being the Liberal Party, you did, you know, all the disgusting things the Liberal Party do to get power and keep it, and now you've got it and what are you doing with it exactly? Like just causing an absolute snafu of garbage. So citizens who are desperately trying to get through this terrifying, terrifying situation can't get the basic information they need just to do the right thing. Oh, my well, God, I want to throw rocks through windows. and well, But no, I can't because no, I know no, that that's, yeah, yeah. I'm, obviously I'm not going to yeah, do yeah. that. But, but oh, I wanna, I'm just so angry. Look, I want to, I really want to stress to people the importance of getting vaccinated because we are seeing People who are vaccinated are less likely to go to hospital, uh, are less likely to die. I know not everybody can get a vaccine at the moment, which is another absolute, absolute cluster muck up from the uh, Morrison uh, and and Berejiklian governments. You know, if you can get vaccinated, do. If you've got vaccine leave in your workplace, take it. If you don't, then join your union AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow, join your union and you and your workmates, you know, campaign for vaccine leave so you can get the help you need uh, wherever you are in Australia because it is it is only going to get better when there's enough vaccinations. Um, Katie Gallagher made the point, um, Van, I want to return to that very briefly. Um, we're going to have a long episode today, folks, so hope you're strapped in. Um, but Katie Gallagher, her 14-year-old daughter has COVID and she's really um, ripped the Morrison government a new one over the lack of vaccines available for for people and the fact that there's nothing really at all available for people uh, under 18. And we're seeing, we're seeing spread now, COVID spread. Oh, for 
It, it was so interesting. I mean, Katie Gallagher is a pretty tough customer. You know, she's um, one of those amazing Labor women in the Senate who do the really hard, the deeply researched, difficult questions of government um, in Senate estimates. And she's really built her reputation as being the sort of precise, tough as nails kind of political person. And I was so shocked. I mean, it's devastating to hear that her 14, I believe she's 14-year-old daughter, has coronavirus and is part of the the outbreak in in Canberra. And Katie Gallagher did an interview with um, Michael Rowland on ABC this morning that had me in tears because she went from being this, you know, very, very onto it, very sort of technical um, accountability sort of prefect politician to being yeah. a mother in absolute terror uh, about what was happening with her child. And you could hear her voice trembling just with fear and rage, you know, that. and she was like, my daughter is suffering. She's suffering and she's alone, you know, and her brother is in the next room waiting to get it. And it's oh, awful. it was. It's. I seriously recommend. I. I think I did share it on Twitter this morning, and I do recommend people have a look at it. It's really. It brings it home. It brings it home what the cost of this crisis is. And anybody who thinks that coronavirus doesn't affect them or is something happening over there, and can we just acknowledge Ben, your friend John Ruddick? I think you should oh. maybe. Don't call him my friend. The man who wanted to have an experiment, like John John Ruddick. John Ruddick should be in prison. The man has espoused foreign propaganda. You might want to explain who he is, my darling. So John Ruddick is a is a, a, a person of some political interest. Let me put it that way. Who believes of himself to be a political leader uh, from New South Wales who was part of the uh, organising group uh, or certainly part of the puppets manipulated into organising the, 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 I'm not going to call them protests, the, the, the exposure event, the mass exposure event that happened in Sydney uh, and was replicated in other places a couple of weeks ago. John Ruddick, who was, of course, fined um, uh, some... Amount fifteen hundred or five thousand dollars or some amount, which for someone of his particular income bracket is not a significant amount of money. He went online and bragged about how this was an experiment uh, that I'm sure we'll see bodies in the streets. Lol, uh, I'm going to frame my fine and hang it on the wall as a badge of honour. He was espousing the propaganda of foreign agents. He has exposed Australians to a deadly disease. He has extended the outbreak of a pandemic in this country and now in New Zealand, and he should be imprisoned. He won't be because that's just not likely to happen, but this individual, along with others like him, have absolutely undermined undermined the health and safety of millions of Australians, let alone let alone the livelihoods of millions of Australians, let alone the the pressure it's put on individuals separated from each other, like you and I, families who are torn asunder people who have to lock themselves in different ends of the house because of COVID exposure. This is an outrageously vile set of foreign propaganda that this individual has spread in this country and it has caused a worsening of the outbreak. There's no question now. You know, the numbers have gotten worse and worse and worse. He has bragged about it. He has taken credit for it. He has no shame about it whatsoever and he treats it like a joke. And frankly, frankly, he should be, uh, he should face proper consequences, uh, legal consequences through a proper system of justice. Uh, and it just, it enrages me, as you know. Like, I, I actually didn't expect you to bring him up today because it does enrage me so much. And, and you know, frankly, the, the the Gladys, oh, it's individuals who need to be responsible um, narrative, um, which is a nonsense narrative uh, because what it's not doing, what Gladys is not doing and her government is not doing 
is holding individuals like him responsible, individuals like him who have manipulated and spread foreign propaganda among people to scare them into taking action which has made this situation worse. If Gladys really wants to to make this about individuals and their actions and individuals facing consequences, then let me say she should be going around to John Ruddock's house with those anti-terrorism police that she was so happy to let John Barillaro borrow and make John Ruddock face the consequences of his actions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's my rant on that. Look, we should we should move on because we've got one quick piece of news that's come out today, which is important um, because it reinforces why we need to be in our union. Wages have gone backwards, Van. The consumer price index is up 3.8%. Wages have only gone up 1.8%. That means that for Australian wage earners, they've had a real wage cut of 2% over the last year. That means that people in Australia are 2% worse off than this time last year. And if and if you're in uh, electricity, gas, water, waste services, transport, postal, warehousing, healthcare, social assistance, the arts, recreation, any of those industries, you have been hit the hardest. I don't need to tell you that. I know that. Uh, I know that if you're in those industries and you're listening, uh, you're undoubtedly aware that you've been going backwards. You know, I really encourage people to check out the On the Job podcast. Um, with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg uh, on thejobpodcast.com.au. That's their website because they talk about how unions bring people together and in the workplace lift wages. You know, we talk all the time on this show about join your union, you know, australianunions.org.au slash wow to join if you're not already a member. Join today because it's by being together in the workplace that we can bring those wages back up and, you know, we've seen the Morrison government has has inverted the paradigm. You know, they have a huge amount of power in the work in the workplace. They have a huge number of employees. And can you guess which sector had the the worst wage outcomes over the last year, Van? Tell me. The public sector. Oh. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Liberals across the country have managed to make it so that if you're in the public sector, you've had worse outcomes. You know, all that talk at the start of the pandemic, oh, public sector workers aren't taking a pay cut and the private sector's carrying all the, all the weight. Well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. What have we actually seen? What do the numbers actually tell us? They tell us that because of the Liberal governments in place, federally with Morrison, in New South Wales with Gladys, in other parts of the country as well, there has been a reduction in the real wages of the public of our public servants, which of course has a knock-on effect. They spend less money, there's less economic activity, and it's dragging down the wages of everybody else as well. So, you know, Seriously, if you're listening to us, do check out on the job um, podcast because that's a good place to get some really good insight from the people that are interviewed there about how unions are going about trying to light, raise wages and improve conditions. And of course, if you're not a member, let me tell you, now there's never been a better time to join. There's never a wage been a better to- time to join. And also, I mean, we've seen in the United States that where the anti-mask madness is killing people. Like the anti-vax, anti-mask thing has become like an article of faith on the right and you mm. have there's there are charts that you can look at with the coronavirus outbreaks now since the invention of the vaccine and they are concentrated in Trump voting communities and Trump voting states. Like you've had all of these sort of Trumpists, governors and um, local governments who are like, yeah, you know, we're standing up for freedom, we're not making people get vaxxed, we're not getting masks and those communities are literally riddled with coronavirus. So in Texas there's been this big, um, the governor there is obviously a Republican and he's like, you know, no to mask mandates and has been overriding schools and local councils who've tried to bring them in. 
teachers unions in the United States have been like, our job is to look after children and we defy you. We absolutely defy you. We will wear masks. We will institute mask mandates. We will not crowd children into classrooms um, and because children are, of course, the victims of this um of the Delta outbreak, the old myth about yeah. how, oh, children don't get coronavirus is well and truly done and dusted. There are something like 5,000 children who are in um, who are in hospital with coronavirus in Florida. You know, like it, the numbers are just absolutely heartbreaking. And, of course, came out this week that the governor of Texas has coronavirus and but he's vaccinated so the republicans have been doing this whole no one can force you to get a vaccination blah 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 but what do you know all of the guys who are pushing this line they're all totally vaccinated of and course think, they are and i think the point here just to just to tie it together is to, is that you know in australia where we're seeing some employers saying you have to be vaccinated you know the australian unions have been making the point that you know, there needs to be consultation about how that happens. You know, unions are pushing for access to vaccines. They're pushing for safe workplaces. You know, they they want to make sure that everyone is safe, everyone is able to come to work and be safe and go home and be safe and not spreading a disease, uh, whether they're working with children or in the health sector or in disability or just, you know, wh- whatever work they're doing. I was going to say just manufacturing, but manufacturing, Manufacturing is so important. Um, whatever the work people are doing, that they're able to be vaccinated, and that this sort of idea, Qantas said it today, right? That everyone's going to be, we're going to mandate a vaccine. You know, it's sort of the inverse problem of what the unions and the workers of America face, where government won't won't help and won't support. Well, here it's sort of, oh, we're going to leave it to business to just decide. Well. No, that's not okay. And join your union because people have rights. Um, it may well be legal and reasonable for your employer to say you have to get vaccinated, but it might not be. Um, and it may well be that if they do, they have to provide you with the proper leave and support. And really, that's what we're saying. We're not saying don't get vaccinated, not by any stretch of the imagination. We're saying, the systems have to be in place. The processes have to be in place. Support has to be in place. And unfortunately, whether it's the Governor of Texas, the Premier of New South Wales, the Prime Minister of Australia, or the CEO of Qantas, the people who are in charge of those things are not prepared to do them unless they're brought to the table and made to do them. And that's where standing together, standing collectively with proper social distancing as a union gives you the power to get those outcomes. Now, Van, let's get some good news out there because we've just uh, talked for an hour with with our, with our patient listeners about, about some of the woes of the world. Tell us the good news about electric highways in WA. Oh, well, in God's own country, Western Australia, they are, they're, they're doing it. They're, they're making the links between... Jobs and climate action, and they've put in one of the longest highways in the world of electric vehicle charging stations. So they've beaten Queensland. So this is a big thing in Queensland that they've put in yeah. electric vehicle superhighways, which is just amazing. Um, so people could travel the state of Queensland without using petrol if they've got electric cars. Uh, And what they've done in Western Australia is so good because they've looked at where they actually want to draw tourist traffic and they're putting electric vehicle charging stations there. So all down the West Coast, and that's a pretty hefty chunk of chunk of distance the west coast of west australia that's quite a lot um and but they've done they've planned it like they've gone where is it where is it safe and environmentally responsible for tourists to go where do we want tourists to spend money what are the towns that need this and they're all about 100 i think it's about 150 180 kilometers apart bearing in mind an electric vehicle can get you 400 kilometers on one charge so they they're doing it and they're encouraging 
Um, they're encouraging tourism. They're doing something environmentally responsible. Obviously, jobs go into this because you need hundreds of them. They've got to be built. They've got to be installed. They've got to be constructed, all those things. And it's just really great. Like, it's just sensible policy. Um, those of you concerned that we've gone over an hour, I was so desperate for good news this week. I was literally spamming Ben's account uh, with things like there's been an increase in Kiwi numbers in in New Zealand, uh, the beautiful bird, which, of course, has no defence against predators because they didn't used to have any. Uh, an amazing collective neighbourhood effort from New Zealanders has restocked the population of that beautiful, beautiful bird by getting rid of feral, the feral animals that prey on them. Um, yeah. Amazing things to do with uh, trucks that have the refrigeration trucks with solar roofs. So rather than using diesel fuel to run refrigerators on trucks, they're using solar roofs. And anyway, if you need some good news, just hit me up. I've got heaps. There are three stories for you. Restoration of Kiwi population in New Zealand, solar like solar roofs, refrigerating storage trucks, and also the amazing electric vehicle superhighway in WA. That's fantastic news. It's all excellent good news. I think it's always important that we remember that for all of the awful things that we hear in the news, there's lots of good things happening all around the world whether it's in WA or New Zealand uh, or some other part of the globe, uh, you know, there's lots of good people doing good things to try and make life better uh, and we need to remember that uh, as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Week on Wednesday this week. Uh, We are now in our second year of The Week on Wednesday. It's been a fantastic Fantastic journey so far. We hope to continue it. The dog is squirming away. Hopefully uh, we have entertained you more than we have entertained him uh, and that you'll continue to listen, continue to share, continue to comment, send us your emails, let us know what you think of the show, let us know what you want us to focus on, what are the big issues that are impacting you. Don't forget to join your union and, and do check out uh, Francis Leach and Sally Rugg on, on the job. Um, it's a fantastic Australian Unions podcast. And if you uh, and haven't I- joined your union yet, www.australianunions.org.au backslash wow. And that means that people will know you've joined a union because of the week on Wednesday. And that is what Ben and I do it for, for the joy, for the joy, for the joy, for the joy. That's absolutely right. And please... Do remember to share this episode. Do remember to comment. Don't forget to listen to the Weekend Wrap. That's uh, a little project that I do every Sunday afternoon. Ben has uh, a rant every Sunday and I love him <laughs> for it. Um, can I just say before we go, I just want to send out my love and solidarity to my Hazara friends Absolutely. who are fighting so hard. Um to for sanctuary and for safety who are beside themselves about what's going on in Afghanistan who are terrified about their families and face a really uncertain future and I just want you to know that you know there's a huge community of us who will do whatever we can whatever we can to bring you the sanctuary that you deserve and on that note folks that is the week on Wednesday Uh, I love you Vanny I love you too baby I miss you bad I miss you too. Bye. Bye.